You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In the last two years, we've seen a dramatic shift in healthcare. We all know about the surge in virtual medicine and telehealth. There's also a new trend, corporations getting involved in primary care. In a little bit, we'll talk more about that. But first up, let's talk about a special report we published at the end of September. Here at Fierce Healthcare, we aim to spotlight some of the most important contributions made by people of color across health systems, physicians' offices, health tech, and insurance companies. For the past three years, Fierce Healthcare has selected 10 leaders to honor for the measurable impact they made on the healthcare industry. Here to talk about that honor and our special report are editors Heather Landy and Paige Minnemeyer. Heather, it's, it's great to, to touch base and chat a little bit about the, the um, 2022 Minority Executives of Influence list that we just released. We established this list uh, several years ago to recognize people of color in the industry who are making a difference. Um, what do you think are the kind of the key factors in determining winners and what makes a nominee stand out to you? Yeah. Hi, Paige. Really excited to talk about this award and this special report that we just put out. Um, I think it's something that we take pride in every year and we really, really like highlighting and spotlighting executives throughout the industry who are making an impact. What stands out for me are leaders who are not only impacting their own organizations, but who are also making a mark in their communities and in the industry overall. So when I'm looking at these nominees, and we had so many, so many great nominees, I kind of look at what they've accomplished in the past year, but I also look at the totality of their professional experience. You know, how are they paving the way forward for the industry? How does their passion for the industry really stand out? In looking at this year's list, there's a really diverse selection of of people from different sectors of the industry, as well as kind of representing different focus areas. But, you know, I noticed, and and we talked about this before, that there, you know, is quite a few people that won this year who work in health equity, which has been a a key trend in in healthcare, especially coming out of COVID. In 2021's list, we had a good list of people who were, you know, really heavily on the front lines of the pandemic. Um, What are you seeing maybe as some of the common threads? of the, the nominees and, and eventual winners. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And that is something that really stood out to me as I was reading through the nominations. And it wasn't just the finalists. I really saw this common thread um, that really tied together a lot of the nominees where a lot of the work touched on health equity and addressing you know disparities in healthcare. And for some people, it's a key part of what they do, right? Dr. Alitha Maybank, with the American Medical Association, a key part of her work is to embed racial justice in the organization's policies. And Dr. Anna Nunez, who is the Vice Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of Minnesota Medical School, I mean, these are two leaders whose work really centers on health equity. But then you had other leaders who are focused on other things, but their work touches on all these issues. Um, Google Cloud Executive Elisa Lynch she leads their med tech strategies and solutions. Part of her work is to make sure that they're using artificial intelligence for good by ensuring emerging technologies are reflective of the patient populations that they aim to serve. And then Kenneth Park with Clarify Health, he helped to launch Clarify Trials, which is a real-world evidence-based software 
that improves diversity within clinical trials. They're not necessarily, you know, the leaders of health equity in their organizations, but their work is all touching on all this, on all of this. And so that's a key thing that I noticed. And I think it's kind of reflective of, of this moment in time, right? I mean, last year's list reflected a lot of leaders, as you said, working on the front lines of COVID, which right. reflected what, you know, the whole, the entire industry was focused on. And I think in part due to, to, due to COVID, it really did kind of highlight all the inequities and disparities that are in healthcare that we see in healthcare. And I think that's helped kind of elevate all of this work that's going on. When we do these awards, we have kind of a a stock of questions that we ask every year, you know, fun ones and and serious ones. You know, we ask what their first job was, things like that. Um, This year, we asked all the winners on this list um, what the biggest lesson they learned from COVID was. Um, As you were kind of working on this and compiling the list, were there any pieces of advice or lessons learned that really kind of stuck out to you? One thing I noticed, this was like, again, a kind of a key theme throughout all the responses um, was just just this need for collaboration. I think the pandemic really highlighted that organizations across the industry, providers, payers, tech companies, um, public health organizations, they all need to work together to try to improve the health of the entire population. And again, this whole issue of racial disparities and the gaps in healthcare that became more pronounced during COVID-19. A lot of these executives really kind of keyed in on this idea that we need to maintain our momentum in the fight against racism and reducing gaps in care. And then kind of on a positive note, a lot of these leaders really also highlighted that telehealth really kind of proved itself during the COVID-19 pandemic. And virtual care and telehealth really came out as key tools that people could use to still access care despite the pandemic. You did the legwork in compiling this report, so you had the chance to to connect with all of the winners and all the leaders that we focused on this year. Um, what was that kind of experience like reporting on this? And do you feel like maybe you took away some lessons yourself from, from these executives? Yeah, I mean, there's just so much to admire about all 10 of these leaders, and that's true for the past three years that we've done this list. I think something that came to me that was interesting as I was you know, connecting with these executives is that your career doesn't have to follow a straight path, right? So a lot of these leaders, they didn't start out in healthcare or they started out in a different part of healthcare and their career paths took kind of different twists and turns. To me, that stood out as something that could be helpful to any of us in our careers. And also Simple Health CEO, Carrie Subut, mentioned in, in her response that it doesn't take a big idea to make a change. That's something that I think that comes out in all of these leaders. She said, even small impacts can eventually turn the tide. We all have a responsibility to do something to help create a system that is beneficial for every living living person. I think that's a good lesson to be learned. You don't have to change the world, but you can do these small things that can have an impact. This is the third year that we've done this list, um, and it's not one we intend to, you know, put away in the future. You know, if for 2023 and beyond, I mean, for people who might be interested in, in nominating someone they know or work with or even themselves for this list, I mean, what would you say to people that should encourage them to to get involved with with recognizing, you know, executives of color in the industry? Well, I think there might be one kind of misconception is that you in order to be nominated or to, to be a finalist, you have to be from a really large organization and you have to be having an impact on, you know, a huge number of, of patients or employees. And I would encourage people to put in their nominations for people that they feel are making an impact, even at a very local level. Not everybody 
that was a finalist is from a big organization. I mean, one executive, Carrie Novak, she manages multiple rural ambulatory care clinics, and her impact is more at a very, very local level. And I think that's just as important as somebody who works at a big multinational healthcare organization. So I would just encourage people to to nominate people across the board, people who are making an impact in any in any part of the industry. Great advice, definitely. In in the future, if you want us to to include you, reach out. Um, but Heather, it was great to to connect about this. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was great to connect with you as well, Paige. It's always great to talk about how we're recognizing leaders in the industry. That was Heather Landy and Paige Minimeyer. Next up, we'll talk about retail corporations are doing in healthcare. But before we continue with our next guest, I want to give you a heads up about some upcoming special episodes. We're going to stray a bit from our normal format. Next week, you'll hear from Robert King, a reporter here at Pierce, as he talks about the biggest issues to watch out for as MA enrollment begins. And then the following week, we have a special episode about our Fierce Health Payer Summit. It happens today, October 12th and focuses on Medicare Advantage. Because of the market's rapid growth, insurers are investing more in elderly people. At the summit, we'll talk with industry experts and top executives on the lessons they're learning. It happens today, so just visit FierceHealthPayerSummit.com. And just in case you overslept today and you'll miss it, don't worry. We'll give you a recap on Podnosis later this month. And on to our next guest. Primary care and home health are now the two hottest sectors in healthcare. Private investors, retailers, and health insurers pump billions of dollars into health ventures. Healthcare is a $4 trillion industry, and companies with deep pockets are trying to get a slice of the pie by providing medical services. Primary care is often thought of as a solo medical practice by the local family doctor. Really, it makes me think of a Norman Rockwell painting. But now we're seeing a shift where, in the near future, more medical care could be provided in clinics owned by corporations. Take Amazon, for example. It's in the works to acquire One Medical, a primary care company. Walgreens paid $5.2 billion for a controlling stake in Village MD, and it shelled out $330 million for CareCentrics. CVS bought Signify Health for $8 billion. We can't forget Walmart. It's building its own in-store clinics and already has about 20 locations. That's all happened in the last couple of years. At the same time, healthcare has shifted to consumers' homes with virtual and telehealth, a shift that accelerated during the COVID-19 pandemic. To make sense of all these trends, Fierce Healthcare's senior editor, Heather Landy, sat down with Natalie Chabelle, Vice President and Research Director at Forrester, a global market research company. Here they are. Hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to digging into what's going on in the primary care market. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Right. So let's just kind of table set for a second. We're seeing new primary care startups, retailers, and insurers all focused on owning medical clinics or providing virtual primary care. Uh, you know, Amazon is acquiring One Medical for $3.9 billion. Walgreens paid $5.2 billion for a controlling stake in clinic chain VillageMD. Walgreens also shelled out $330 million for home health care company CareCentrics. That to be outdone, CVS won a bidding more to buy home health care company Signify Health for $8 billion. Walmart also is building out its own in-store clinics. 
And then we're also, you know, U.S. companies focused on primary care raised about $16 billion from investors in 2021, according to Harvard Research. And that's more than four times the amount invested in 2020. So why is there so much competition in primary care right now? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, right now, we're sitting in what is the most disruptive and exciting time uh, in, in primary care history, uh, in healthcare history, really. And the pandemic really drove that forward. And it drove this widespread emergence of virtual care, this eruption of new digital technologies, advances in data analytics, and my personal favorite, the surge of consumerism. That's where all these retail companies are stepping in. They see this tremendous opportunity there. They want that piece of that $4.1 trillion pie. Uh, and they are very well equipped to do it because right now our healthcare system is, is failing. Um, right now we have the looming pandemic it continues to impact the American healthcare system with new strains of the coronavirus. We've had a lot of people postponing medical care, uh, and that could be a whole nother podcast discuss uh, what the aftermath of that aftermath of that is. We have a high prevalence of chronic disease here in the U.S. Six out of 10 American adults have a chronic illness. Four out of 10 have two or more chronic illnesses. We saw the mass exodus of healthcare workers, uh, the great resignation, where one in five healthcare workers left the industry since February of 2020. And last but not least, we have the plight of the silver tsunami. We have this burgeoning population of the elderly. They want to age in place at home in the, in, where it's most comfortable. Uh, they don't want to go into nursing homes when that time comes. Um, and so, you know, there's lots of different uh, factors that are playing into this. And what better time than retail health, who already started dipping their toes in the water in various capacities, uh, to really now take on a new market and disrupt primary care. So you used um, a really interesting word, disrupt and disruption. And I feel like that's a term that we've heard more and more over the past, maybe like five years, this ideal of disruptors coming into healthcare. You know, we're also seeing grocery chain Kroger, Target, and even Dollar General investing in healthcare. What are these retailers bringing to the market? How are they going to be disrupting primary care? One word, convenience, and well, I'll give you another word, personalization, and they, they, go <laughs> hand, they go hand in hand. So right now, across the nation, it takes about, the average is 20 days to see a healthcare provider. And if you um, take a look at specialty services that usually require a referral, tack on another 20 days to that. So 40 days to go see the, the specialist that you need to get the care that you need. That's a problem. Individuals want care. They they want it uh, where in the in the time and place that they prefer, and that's the opportunity that retail health brings. It's okay. You can't find a medical appointment. We've got a solution. Go ahead online. You can uh, find the particular doctor. You can uh, find that scheduling block that you prefer, and within 24 hours, you can get access to the care that you need. Right. Um, and so it's really it's about owning the front door to healthcare, right? By by kind of investing in primary care, you're able to, uh, these companies are able to kind of own the whole care continuum. I mean, is that kind of what their strategic play is? That's the goal because to do this right, they have to touch the patient at every uh, point in their healthcare journey. And that's the biggest challenge. So it's easy to open up automated scheduling 
to staff uh, your, your clinics with enough personnel. However, the big challenge is that the consumer has many choices and the pandemic drove that. And what's bringing them into these retail health clinics uh, is that desire for, for convenience and for access to care. But with that comes all the competition. They also have their regular primary care provider. They may have another provider through their employer on site or some of the ancillary services that, that they're provided. Uh, they may go out of pocket and have other medical services that they're paying for. So when they walk through that door to that retail health clinic, those providers and their technology has to be interoperable. It has to be set up to know who that patient is, to know what their prior medical history is, and to follow through on that. And that's the, the biggest challenge that they're going to have to face. Okay, right. Yeah, that's really insightful. Now, long before retailers moved into primary care, hospitals and health systems were buying up medical clinics to own more of the care continuum. But I saw one report that estimated that companies like Amazon, CVS, and Walgreens have the potential to grab as much of, as a third of the U.S. primary care market by 2030. So these traditional brick-and-mortar medical practices and hospitals should be on notice, right? You know, what does all this competition in the market mean for primary care doctors and hospitals? It means that primary care doctors and hospitals have to put the, the patient, the consumer, first. Another factor in there is they're going to want to go uh, to a facility uh, where uh, or an organization, whether the appointment is online or in person, they're going to want to know exactly how much it's going to cost. And that's another competitive advantage of retail health. All of the prices for their visits and services are readily available. Uh, they're online. It's a no-brainer. They know when they walk through that door what they're going to pay. Uh, they know the name of the doctor they're going to see because they made the appointment. Uh, that's the competitive advantage. And if other healthcare organizations or the traditional healthcare organizations can't compete uh, with time to appointment and access to care uh, and that personalization of care, they should be very worried right now. Right. And I do want to talk about the potential impact um, to patients. But first, let's talk about Amazon. In the past year, the company announced plans to buy One Medical for nearly $4 billion, while also revealing plans to shutter Amazon Care, which it piloted about three years ago. You called the decision to shut down Amazon Care a strategic move rather than a failure. So what's your take on Amazon's ambitions in healthcare? Absolutely. So Amazon Care was an opportunity for them to dip their toes in the water, uh, to trial out what primary care is like uh, with their employee population. Uh, I'm sure there were many lessons learned, uh, and that's one thing that uh, the big tech titans and retail titans are really good at, and that's where uh, the big shift comes in. I'm, I cannot speak for Amazon, but, but looking at the problems that the American healthcare system has, very difficult to solve them all. So what Amazon is doing is they're going direct to the consumer. They're recognizing that need. They're recognizing that rise of consumerism. And they're going to a company like One Medical, who has the experience uh, and the platforms and the expertise in order to, to, to really scale and shift into primary care. Right. And these companies are all taking, you know, slightly different strategies. One Medical has close to, I think, 200 clinics um, throughout the country. So with that acquisition, you know, Amazon is focusing on actual in-person care. There's also a, a virtual care component. So if you're a telehealth company or virtual care company, what should you be taking away from all these moves? I mean, how, how could this potentially impact telehealth companies? I think it absolutely will impact telehealth companies. 
Telehealth is extremely helpful and we saw a critical mass and it helps to increase access to care, but the hybrid uh, method still reigns. You still need to go and physically see a provider at some point. You cannot have all of your medical care online. And so if, as a telehealth company, I would be very nervous. You know, when uh, Amazon acquires one medical, they're going to gain one medical 767,000 members already with Amazon has over 200 million prime members. And now with one medical, they have that potential to have those physical spaces. And if you're a telehealth company, you're going to be put at a disadvantage if that's the only thing you do. People not only want access to care, they want convenience. They want to be able to walk into the door or get an appointment at home and get their prescriptions too. Yeah, that's really interesting. As the primary care market changes, it will ultimately impact patients. There might come a time when we get more of our health care from clinics owned by these companies than our local family doctor. But that also raises concerns about what these companies are doing with our medical data. Should patients be concerned about these disruptors moving into healthcare? This is where things get complicated. And this is where what will make or break retail health and companies like Amazon is transparency. They have to keep consumers informed of these privacy policies, what their data is being used for, and they really need to give consumers the power uh, in order to revoke access. Uh, and they need to update consumers on a frequent basis on any updates to their privacy policy. And it's been raising lots of uh, concerns across the U.S., uh, depending on who someone is. We have individuals who are, uh, who you, who are Amazon Prime members. And we, we already know how Amazon Prime works and how uh, Amazon leverages consumer data to drive their sales, the personalized product feeds, and of course, to, to implement dyna dynamic pricing. And we see some of that when we go shopping and some of the, the suggestive recommendations and the advertising that we, that we receive. And so there's a concern and there's a senator, Josh Hawley uh, from Missouri, who uh, asked the FTC to probe Amazon. Uh, Amazon One Medical deal. And he's particularly concerned that the acquisition would provide Amazon with access to enormous tranches of patient data. And he pointed out specifically, you know, there could be loopholes uh, that exist, as we know, in, in, in every framework. And so that's really the, the multi-billion dollar question is, how is this going to all play out? How will Amazon communicate to its consumers its privacy policies? How often will they update them? And I do think that's one advantage that traditional providers have is they built that trust with patients over the years. What remains to be seen also is what is if this leads to uh, you know improved access to care or better quality of care for patients. I mean, what impact could this have on um, reaching kind of underserved populations? Do you have any sense on on how that could play out? My team and I did a decent amount of research and what's going on right now with the rural health population. Uh, and you, you take a look at uh, some 60, 000, or 60 million Americans who live in rural areas. Since 2013, there's been about 100 hospital closures, lots of pharmacies closing. They're more likely to die from the five leading causes of death. We saw nearly twice the mortality rate due to COVID-19 during the pandemic. For a wide variety of reasons, include, including social, social economic uh, status and social determinants of health. And so when you take a look at a, a company like uh, Walmart and how they're strategically positioned with these very large retail stores, and now they have urgent care, and you can go into 
Walmart. You can get your food. You can go see a doctor, get your arm casted if you if you break it. And, and that for those individuals uh, is access to care that they need when the hospitals are closing at devastating rates in, in those areas. So those stores are strategically placed to assist that population. Um, and so that's a that's a strategic advantage uh, for Walmart uh, versus uh, a company like Amazon that doesn't have the physical spaces or at least the magnitude of those physical spaces uh, in those rural areas. When we talk about the lack of access to care that individuals are experiencing today because of the sweeping workforce shortages, of course, the, the great uh, resignation and lots of nurses uh, leaving the workforce as well and retiring early, there's some hope here. I'm not saying it's a panacea, but there's some hope uh, that this can possibly help this uh, population health crisis that we're seeing. And I say, if retail health wants to take a stab at it, uh, you know, they're welcome to do so. It could be a very good thing for population health and for America. That's a really great point. I mean, just Walmart itself has a very broad reach across the country and into areas where there are, you know, healthcare deserts. Natalie, it's been great chatting with you and thanks so much for sharing your insights on what we're seeing in the primary care market. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I hope we get to talk again soon. That was Heather Landy with Natalie Chabelle. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. And since we're still a new podcast, be sure to subscribe to our feed to hear us every Wednesday. We've got more great stuff to come. So just ask your smart speaker to play Podnosis. Podnosis.